0: Hello, I'm Cole Peterson, based out of Portland, Oregon. I'm author of Backdoor Revolution and host of the ADU Hour, a podcast where we probe deep into ADUs and other small alternative infill housing. Expansive and deep thinking about small infill housing is our jam. You can sign up for information and announcements from my email newsletter at buildinganadu.com.
1: And I'm Kelsey King, a real estate agent and ADU specialist based in Bellingham, Washington. This week's guest is Robert Liberty. He is an ADU owner and advocate for ADUs in various capacities, including as an elected official, administrator for a university sustainability program, and an advocate for zoning reform to increase housing choices. Robert was also a staff attorney and director of 1000 Friends of Oregon. Colt, tell me about your takeaways from revisiting our interview with Robert.
0: I always enjoy learning more about Oregon's urban growth boundary. It's had such a big impact on not only the conservation of natural areas, but on urban planning policy in cities like Portland. Robert has first-hand experience with the formation of these key laws and regulations from the early 1970s. More recently, Robert has done a lot of work on ADUs, so I appreciate how he's been able to bring a sagely career of insights to bear on this newish movement. What were some of your key takeaways?
1: Robert has tangible advice for community members interested in taking action and advocating for ADU and infill development. His knowledge and impact as an advocate spans beyond Portland, which makes this interview a great resource for anyone interested in advocating where they live. I lived in Portland as food tourism was changing the city, and Robert touches on this and the impact that tourism can have on infill development. Let's get to our interview with Robert Liberty.
0: It's the man of the hour. (laughs) I'm just going to quickly introduce Robert Liberty, a a colleague and friend, and we've been working and strategizing on ADU stuff together for a long time, more closely in the last few years. Robert was the head of the Portland State University's Institute for Sustainable Solutions, and he focused that institute's efforts on ADU-related activities, which we'll be talking about momentarily. More recently, Robert built an ADU in his house, so we're going to be talking about that too. And also, some of his previous experiences related to land use legislation or land use law in Oregon, which is a really fascinating topic in its own right. And we'll be talking a little bit about the connection between the urban growth boundary policies. He's also a former elected official with Metro. So welcome, Robert. Any opening remarks before we launch into some questions? No, launch. All right, so we're gonna start off by talking about the history of the urban growth boundary a little bit, which I just alluded to. It's referred to colloquially, locally as the UGB, so that's what we'll call it. A lot of people on the call might know what the UGB is, but in essence, every city in Oregon, regardless of size, has a urban growth boundary, and we're gonna show off what that looks like in practice. But the regulation of housing is also part of the Oregon Land Use Program. Can you tell us something about that, Robert?
2: Yeah, I think people who don't know about the program, other than we have urban growth boundaries to limit growth, some will think that was going to limit the amount of housing production. But from the very beginning, one of the problems that was tackled by these laws starting 40 years ago was the zoning that limited housing choice to single-family homes on large lots and often big homes. So right from the beginning, there was an understanding that if you're going to be more compact in your growth patterns, you should also increase housing choices. And the supply of land was much less of a factor in the cost of housing than the regulations of housing. So at the same time urban growth boundaries were drawn, starting at the state level, we went through every city and every urban part of every county and said, look, you've got to rezone land for apartments, for smaller lots, for duplexes, for townhomes. And that was accomplished largely in the 1980s. And it's it's made a huge difference.
0: So given that no other state in the nation has an urban growth boundary, Does this concept even matter in this conversation about infill housing, or is it kind of pointless to even talk about it because no other state has anything like it?
2: Well, actually, it's not true that no other state has anything like it. The state of Washington has urban growth areas, uh, and scattered across the country in places as varied as South Dakota and Kentucky and Colorado, you find urban growth boundaries, even a little town and township in Michigan called Frankenmuth and Lexington, Kentucky, and they won't call it this, but Sioux Falls, South Dakota has virtually the same thing, Ventura County, uh, Northern California. So there's, I don't know, maybe 15 million people living in uh, communities with urban growth boundaries. Okay. And What I've found is all of them end up having the same elements, and one of them is to change the regulation of zoning to allow more housing to be produced.
0: So it, it has some political relevance, at least in those areas.
2: Well, it has political relevance, and I think there's real concern now in understanding about what housing regulations done to limited people's housing choices, and I think that can be a starting point for talking about, well, how do we grow generally, and how does this connect to climate change, and maybe we can talk about that later. So, uh, it's a different political world than it was in the 1980s, we all know that, it's a different world than it was 20 years ago, but there may be an opportunity for change accelerated by the pandemic, actually.
0: Yeah. Actually, I'm going to do a quick thing here and share two slides that show what an urban growth boundary looks like, just as a really quick illustration of what the urban growth boundary does. Robert, can you just briefly talk about these two slides here? Yeah,
2: these are what are called figure grounds, which are actually the black is the structure, and they were done by the New York Times. They weren't done by anyone here in Oregon. And this shows the Portland metropolitan region, and the urban growth boundary is really obvious in this. It's not drawn in, it just shows how development has been made contiguous and more efficient. If you go to the next slide, this is the same kind of map from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is virtually identical metropolitan population and a very similar growth rate. So you can see there's a huge difference, and this makes a big difference to the economy, to society, and uh, to greenhouse gases. And yes, it does connect to accessory dwelling units, and we'll talk about that. Great.
0: Thanks. So one of the things that I've observed as a resident of Portland for roughly a decade is that my perception is that there's kind of a cultural... I want to actually have you check me on this, but my perception is there's this cultural acceptance towards infill housing and density as a result, in part... um, of the influence of the UGB, which was established in 73, and that's kind of inculcated itself into the culture and the ethos of Portlanders, at least. Is that accurate? Do you think, do you think that's accurate in terms of under, understanding the mentality of acceptance towards infill housing?
2: I think it is part of it because the arguments have been made for 40 years. We've had seven ballot measures at the state level dealing with the planning program for and against. And by and large, the public has reinforced it. And I want to clarify something because people get confused and hear about urban growth boundary for Portland. It's not an urban growth boundary for Portland. It's for the entire metropolitan region, for 24 cities. And every city in Oregon has one. Antelope has a population of 50. It has an urban growth boundary. So this is widely understood as a basic strategy of saving lands we need for farm and forest production and natural resources, and being more efficient with taxpayer dollars as well. So yes, it has become, you know, I've, back in the day when I took taxis home from the airport, I'm not making this up. Taxi driver brought up the urban growth boundary. So yes, it is part of the thinking. But I think the other part of that thinking is there's some benefits about growing efficiently and using the structures and land we have that have nothing to do with saving farm and forest land, that are good in themselves. If our landscape looked like the moon, there would still be good reasons to do what we've done and to make it easier for people to have housing choices and reduce regulation. So, yes, I, th- I think there is a culture, but this is what I utterly reject. Because uh, I often do presentations and I show a picture of Oz and the characters from Oz, and the background is Portland under these green towers. So, this is just wrong. We were so much like every other state in 1973. I mean, we were basically. Columbus, Ohio, with fir trees and bracket fungus, or, or sagebrush, depending on what part of the state. And we became different by working on it, and it was very contentious. Nicole, as you know, it's still very contentious in Portland. It wasn't easy, and it's actually the fight over these things that helps people understand them. So other places say, oh, we couldn't do that, it'd be too controversial. The answer is, yes, you can do it. Yes, it'll be controversial. And overcoming the controversy is part of the education process. Yes. Yeah. Great. So that's for those interested in ADU design, so far this is a bomb. So I, we get into the ADUs more. But you and I are both interested in the big policy setting for ADUs. Well, I mean,
0: that that's largely what I wanted to talk about with you is these policy aspects. You bring a lot to the table with these policy discussions that you have a rarefied set of skills and experience. So we're going to focus on that. For several years, you orchestrated a sustainability institute housed within PSU and to focus the Institute's efforts on ADU production. Can you tell us about the initial goals of that program and whether it was successful? Yeah, the
2: Institute for Sustainable Solutions worked on a variety of topics, but this was one and we picked it because it had a high profile, thanks in large part to the work of you and colleagues of yours like Eli Spivak. In making this a big issue, even though ADUs have been authorized in Portland for 30 years, actually, and regionally for 30 years, not much production. So the idea was can we look at all the barriers to production other than regulation and what can we do about them? Cost, financing, uh, permit processing, site suitability designs, and so on. So we commissioned some work, and one set of projects were five standard designs for ADUs to serve different markets from smaller to larger. In fact, the Center for Public Interest Design at Portland State had a studio on that and one of the designs is likely to be built now. That was one project. Another was a survey of hundreds of ADU owners and tenants and all the prior surveys that we were aware of interviewed only the owners and not the tenants. Another was some research into site suitability in the city of Portland, and then we convened people in finance to talk about how to increase access to financing for people who didn't have a lot of equity and savings. We talked about a wide variety of topics. How successful? Well, this is part of a conversation you and I have been having for a while, which is people want this to go to scale, but so far, except in a few places, scale's been pretty modest. And why is that? And can you do this at scale? And what is the role of government? But I would say that we don't know yet. It's a little too soon to tell what the results might be. Some of the work was clearly helpful. Some of it has not been helpful.
1: hmm
0: Yeah, I have a general mentality of urgency around ADU production. I'm tired of dilly-dallying, and I want to see success. I want to highlight programs that have worked as opposed to spending political capital and money and effort on things that might work but haven't proven to work. And so that's kind of the underlying skepticism I have around some of these really good sounding programs that I see a lot of municipalities and institutions trying to promote. And I'll give an example of this. Standardized plans. Obviously that sounds like an easy win. It sounds like a good idea. A lot of jurisdictions are putting effort into design contests to have standardized plans, but we've seen a standardized set of plans in Santa Cruz in 2003 and those were not used even once ever. And and now we see that same thing happening in Seattle and San Diego and a lot of other jurisdictions that are trying standardized plans. And that doesn't have any impact or at least hasn't now it could potentially but i don't want to have i don't want to see governments spinning their wheels on things that haven't proven to be successful i'd rather have them focus on things that we know can actually help
2: well i think th- this particular topic is an interesting one because when we started our work you're very polite in our, our big collaborative meetings by the way I, I do recommend those bringing all these different people together to talk about it generated a lot of activity and interest <laughs> But you were very skeptical, and so was Eli. I remember going up to Vancouver and talking to Jake, who you had on your program, I think, on Wednesday. And on his wall, he had a series of very beautiful renderings of different designs, and I think he mentioned them briefly. I said, how many of those have you built? And he said, none. So that's very important. But one of the things that I have questions about is... Is it because we're talking at a, a very early pioneering market in a limited place? So the house I'm in is a 1945 house. It's 1,100 square feet, including the attic, and it was one of about 40 built in our neighborhood all at once. So those were standardized designs, and those were middle-class homes. So it may be that the people who build ADUs now tend to be more affluent and have disposable income, care more about design. And maybe people who earn $60,000 a year and have a big backyard say, Well, fine, Model B with the brown countertops is fine. So I don't know yet, but this is part of the bigger question, too. The idea of standardized designs was to reduce the time required to do it and maybe the cost. I think the cost issue is a big one, and the design part is not necessarily a big part of the cost. You know, it might be 10%. So I would say, If we want to have large scale production, then we ought to be looking at settings where this might work and markets where that might work. And you have to have the financing and the outreach and then standardized designs. The percentage of Americans who live in single family homes designed by architects must be a fraction of a percent. Most of them are some variation of standardized design. So as I recall, and I'm going to send this question back to you. One of the issues though, is for detached units and is the backyards have too many variations in them. And that's one reason, but how do you feel about why standardized designs don't work?
0: Well, I've asked this question a lot by every prefab company in the world that wants to start doing standardized designs. And I always like to caveat my response with, it could work. In fact, there's three companies in the whole United States where it is working, but there's a hundred companies for whom it's not working and they go out of business. So I don't want to say it can't work, but I will say that the only companies that for whom it has worked are coming in at really inexpensive price points. That seems to be the common theme amongst them and they are standardized plans. So it can theoretically work based on those few examples, but most companies, it doesn't seem to be working. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why, not the least of which is, hey, I'm spending at least $100,000 if not $200,000 on this unit. I wanna have some say over some architectural aspects of how it's gonna look and how it's gonna lay out on my property and what the orientation of the doors and windows and electrical and utility connections from the primary house will be in my particular property. So I think that's a reasonable thing for any homeowner to anticipate being able to have some control over prefabadu.com is the most successful in terms of market rate adoption. They've built several hundred ADUs in the U.S., most of which are prefab, pre-designed, standardized planes.
2: And and obviously in an expensive market. So even compared to the regular homes, they were quite affordable. Yes. The other thing I would say is that the idea that you can have a design that fits all the backyards for detached units that isn't the point. The point is that maybe out of 100,000 sites or 200,000 sites, maybe there's 5% that would fit one of the designs. That's what I think is the opportunity. A flat site without a bunch of trees, or maybe an alley or on a corner or something. If we could map those and say, look, your site actually has a low cost potential. I made a reference to an internal standardized unit. And that was something that the Center for Public Interest Design did. You can see some of these components already exist. The kitchen and bathroom and the wall and have that something you can slide in and connect up and that might save a chunk of money so that's a a standalone possibility could be used in new houses too
0: i want to talk a little bit about the institute for sustainable solutions survey that was done and just share some highlights from that survey
2: so this was a survey done in 2017-18 i think and it was a good database there were hundreds of people interviewed we paid $10 $10 for every response. We've got a good response. The numbers don't look very impressive here, but high quality. The main point of this is that things really took off in 2013. These are all Portland city only. I think the waiver, the $15,000 benefit of not paying system development charges had a lot to do with it. But this also was concurrent with Portland becoming a, a tourist destination where it had never been before around food and a lot of the ADUs are built in the neighborhoods where food tourism is pretty prominent, and it also coincides with a massive run-up in home costs and rental costs. So the returns on building an ADU or renting out part of your existing house as a short-term rental changed dramatically right as we came out of the recession, as well as regulatory reforms and the SDC waiver. So I think, Cole, maybe you can comment on what you've seen nationally, but I think this distribution had changed a little bit from the prior case, but you can see it's detached new structure is 40%, but garage and basement renovations together are 43%. And my impression is that's continuing because I can see a lot of them being uh, built. Yeah. And there, there is a big difference, potentially, I should say there's a big difference in cost Especially in the basement renovation. What's not in there, by the way, and you comment on this, is attic renovations, which is. Yeah,
0: attic renovations represent, I think, 2% of all permitted ADUs in Portland. So it's really marginal. Another weird thing, Robert, this is kind of a fascinating side point here, but if you look at the actual data of real life permits that have been issued in Portland, there's not a lot of internal carve out ADUs aside from basement conversions, just in general, whether it's attic conversions or other portions of the primary levels. The reason that's important is because California has a state law now that's like junior ADUs and it's for internal carve-outs of existing structures, which is another one of these things that sounds obvious. Of course, that's a great idea. We have all these oversized homes, but the data doesn't actually bear out that a lot of people are doing that, aside from taking a basement and converting that, which maybe has some architectural rationale that other internal carve-out ADUs do not.
2: I think it's an interesting question. One of the things I've observed, if you look at the map where accessory dwelling units have been built in the region, not just in Portland, but in the region, they're overwhelmingly clustered at inner neighborhoods in Portland. Those are areas where your market return is really high, but they're also areas that have older homes and small lots. And this is why I think the opportunity in mid-century suburbs is so great, because these are places which have mature trees, small, often awkward home designs from 50 or 100 years ago to adapt. So that's one of my questions is would we see something different if we were looking at uh, blossoming of ADUs in a mid-century ranch home suburb.
0: Well, I think the the form of ADUs does follow regulations and I'll speak to that in a second, but to your point, I think over time, we might see that there's different forms of ADUs that happen as a result of the, the year that the housing stock was developed in a given area. For example, Snout House suburb subdivisions that were built in the 50s to 70s in cul-de-sacs. If and when in California, ADUs take off in those areas, we're going to see a lot of Snout House conversions. Whereas right now, that's not a really prominent form of ADU, but it's, it's obvious. It's a really easy, low-hanging Free for a lot of areas within California, I would say.
2: Well, one of the projects that we did not get done, I'm still interested in getting done, is to look at mid-century homes and which ones would be most easily, cheaply, but effectively converted to include an ADU. So my parents moved in 1962 from inner neighborhood of Portland to a, what was then an outer suburb. It's not anymore. And they bought a ranch-style home, three kids, And it's got a complete daylight basement with what was a wet bar, a bathroom, and separate entrance. I look at that and I think, you know, pretty nice apartment, pretty large, basically in a rec room. So it's big. And that would be a very easy conversion, I think. That home design, even though that actually was designed by an architect, it looks like a lot of other homes. And so that's the kind of thing that's interesting, plus a lot is big. So I think there are a lot of potentials The pioneers tend to be in the inner neighborhoods for a variety of reasons. Now we look at neighborhoods built 50 years ago, one of the opportunities.
0: Let's go through a couple more of these findings
2: from the survey. Some of this is a big change. Short-term housing, less than one month, 26%. This had gone up dramatically from the survey that was done several years before, And I think that's a reflection of what I mentioned before, which is a big spike in rent and tourism coming to Portland. You can also see that 16%, interestingly, it's the owner's primary residence and the ADU is currently occupied, meaning the owner is living on the property. Now, it's one of the things that Portland has done is it doesn't require the owner to live in the primary residence. And on one of your tours, we visited one of those. Properties. The fears that people had are completely unjustified because you can rent your house out anyway. So it's hard for me to understand the fears about, well, we don't want to have the ADU as a, a renter unless the owner of the home lives in the primary residence. So you can already rent out the home. Robert,
0: since you've keyed up this short term uh, housing thing, we I don't want to dwell on this. This is a big topic. I have some really strong talking points about this, but what's your talking point about the? inflation of, or the concept of short-term rental opportunities, options within ADUs?
2: Well, it's a mixed bag, and I have some new information as a result of work in the Columbia Gorge, is that in small markets, you can have a lot of the housing stock converted short-term if you're in a resort area. That's not us. In a city, it's very different. And as you and others have said, a lot of the short-term rentals are in the primary residence. So, confusing an ADU with a short-term rental, is kind of a mistake. Short-term rentals could be anything. I think the other thing is that the short-term rentals, the rapid return is often the trigger that allows people to go ahead and build an ADU. And the s- survey results showed that people often plan to g- get out of the short-term rental business because it's pretty taxing and go to a long-term rental after they'd paid down their debt. Also, there's an equity component during the testimony before the city council on whether to continue the waiver of system development charges. The city said, okay, we'll do it. But but you have to agree not to use the accessory dwelling unit as a short-term rental. One of the people testified said that was going to be my retirement. The only way I can stay in my home. So I wouldn't say that unlimited short-term rentals is good, particularly if you're in a resort area that you're actually changing your housing market in a way that's bad for people. But I think it's a lot more nuanced and complicated. And conflating ADUs with short-term rentals is a mistake, just factually. And yeah. They, that that income stream may be essential trigger.
0: Yeah. Well, this is a really big topic and we could have a whole show on this at some point. The people who are not
2: receiving any rent are often re- using it themselves, living in the primary residence, or it's a relative or a friend. And actually it's significant, the, the percentage of people who it's a friend, it's not a relative, it's not a child, it's a friend who needs it. Also, below market value, I think people said, well, how would they know? But the answer is, in fact, people are pretty careful. They do check. There's lots of information online about what other people are getting for their rents. In fact, when there was a cost increase in our ADU, I said, well, I'm not too concerned, but what kind of rent can I get from this relative to what this extra cost? <laughs> I was so horrified. It was so high. So I certainly knew what the market rents were and people are choosing to do this. They're choosing not to, to charge market rents. They're not trying to maximize their income. And so they're more flexible. So I think this is pretty important. I'm going to go rapid
0: fire through four or five more questions, Robert. So You developed an ADU. Tell us about the development process and what you've learned about providing an affordable ADU rental from a homeowner's point of view. Uh,
2: Well, I started the process by saying I wanted to learn about the difficulties. By the time I was done, I realized that I was wrong. And it was because I found someone, architect and developer, Nicholas Papathimiu, an expert. I'm a land use attorney, but after a while, he really knew the ropes. So really, my job was to give some advice. We talked about the design, and this is a 391-square-foot converted tuck-under garage that has retaining walls into a private patio. It's south-facing, which is very important in Portland. And we had a budget of originally $60,000. It turned out to be $75,000. So I learned it actually wasn't that hard for me. I had to make some decisions. My sweat equity was pretty modest, mostly the exterior uh, landscaping work. And I did learn about the challenges of different interpretations of the same code by different reviewers and building codes. Some of the stuff did drive me a little nuts, but fortunately, Nicholas really was write checks, give us some advice. So that's what can happen elsewhere. Now that you've
0: had some experience with this, what roles do you see ADUs playing in terms of affordability and equity?
2: Well, what we know from the survey is that there's an overlap between the rents charged for ADUs and people earning between 60 and 80% of median household income. So market-provided small housing can be affordable to people at 60 to 80%, but one of the questions is the people in those units may be earning 120%. That's a question about can we find the people really need these rents? So I think it can be pretty significant. The other thing we could have done or can do in Portland is we have a $15,000 value in the waiver of system development charges. The city, and I know you're not a fan of this, but the city could say, we're going to turn that into a rent reduction. And it doesn't have to be dramatic, but we'd like you to shave off $200 a month. So I'm charging significantly below market, but because I had savings I used, my return is, this is gross, 1% a month. There's nothing, especially now, there's nothing I can get in the market as someone who doesn't have a lot of money like that. So I think this combination of great opportunity and need and kind of minor incentives could do a lot. It's not going to solve the problem. There's no silver bullet, but it, this is a piece of silver buckshot that I think can help with the housing market. Robert, this is an important
0: point. Can you just... Explain that in lay terms. When you say your return is 1% a month, explain what that means in tr- dollar values.
2: So the rent I'm charging is $760 a month. The cost of the ADU was about $75,000, $76,000. Mm-hmm. And, and the $76,000 is not construction costs. It's everything. Mm-hmm. Permits, everything, including, I think I threw in at the final of the money I spent on building the planter boxes and the fence and stuff. So that means I'm getting 1% back on my money. Now, if I had borrowed that money, I wouldn't get that kind of return. But if I'd put that money into some sort of investments, I'd be getting a negative return right now. Right. So there were a couple of things that made that possible. One is I had help. Second thing is I had a home with a tuck under garage and I didn't have to provide parking If I'd had to provide parking, that would make a big difference. So this combination of regulations, existing structure, and not getting too obsessed about fancy touches made it. I mean, there's nothing like that I could get. Yeah.
0: Let's dive into a different topic here. Let's talk about the greenhouse gas emission reduction potential of ADUs and middle housing for cities and states that have greenhouse gas emission Reduction laws or policies in place. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. So since we're changing topics so dramatically, I'm going to change my tie. Greenhouse gas production about a quarter, but typically, certainly in this state, 27% is from transportation. Another big share is from the structures themselves. And by having ADUs as a strategy around infill and redevelopment, you reduce driving. People are closer to things, especially if they're built in neighborhoods like. The ones we live in where there's stores nearby can walk to and the conveniences, uh, excellent transit, bike proximity. ADU is a strategy around infill and redevelopment makes a big difference in the amount of travel. So that's one part. The other part is small houses just generally don't take as much energy to heat, dramatically different. I know there's some personal experience. We had an energy audit and there was a threshold of savings they had to meet and then you get a benefit. Well, you know, we couldn't really meet it, and our walls are not insulated. So why is that possible? It's because the house is an appropriate size, 800-square-foot main floor. We shut the doors to the attic. It's just really efficient. And so those two things, the small unit and the infill together, actually have a big impact. And California has made compact growth a major part of its effort to address climate change. And uh, I worked on that project for a couple of years as well.
0: We're going to close out with one question here about your experience as an elected official in Metro many moons ago. What are some strategies that you'd recommend for advocates and elected officials that are confronting common concerns around the impact of off-street parking or owner occupancy or any of the other arguments that are put out there against infill housing in residential zones?
2: Well, I think the most important thing is organized education coming from the residents themselves. We've had, I want to repeat this, this it's very important. All the stuff we've done in Oregon around planning and changing how we grow and develop and around housing has been contentious. It always has been. But there's always been a lot of grassroots advocacy coming from individuals and organizations And I'm amazed at the level of sort of distributed sophistication we have here from these challenges. It's something universities can contribute to. But the most important thing is, and I serve on the Columbia Gorge Commission now, is to have people coming in and saying, I want this in my neighborhood. And to do that, it's best if there's an organization, a YIMBY, yes, in my backyard organization. But it can come from designers. It can come from faculty members. It can come from uh, people in... Faith communities who say, you know, if those people are good enough to take out our garbage or teach our kids, they're good enough to live here. So, this is again an experience that many places have had, but I think that's what has to happen. And then the elected officials get more comfortable. The other thing you can do is, speaking bluntly, is make someone lose an election from being on the wrong side of an issue, and that will get everyone's attention immediately. Good closing piece of Wisdom.
0: Throw your electeds under the bus.
2: That wraps
1: up the interview portion of this episode of the ADU Hour. As a reminder, these episodes are the edited audio version of interviews that we conducted via a webinar series. Good news, you can access the full video series via Cole's website, buildinganadu.com. Now for the second half of the show, I curate questions from the audience that gives our guests the opportunity to dive deeper into a topic or address new ideas and questions. So Jeff Barber is asking, and I'm curious about this too, about comparing the urban growth boundaries from out West to the compact context areas in the Midwest. Is that something that you can address?
2: I'm not sure I know what that is. I can guess a little bit. One thing I'd say is the urban growth boundary is a tool that has to apply over a big area because it separates city and country. And if you don't limit what happens outside the boundary, it's worthless. So in Oregon, about 96% of the private land is owned for farm or forest use. And you're not necessarily entitled to even build a house. So you can't, just densify and allow sprawl across the countryside. You have to have a system that covers a state or a whole region. And it is also not true that encouraging density in cities or allowing density in cities will save the countryside. It doesn't work that way. You have to have something that applies across the whole landscape.
1: Thank you. What could, specifically, this question asks California, but I think anywhere, learn from Oregon in regards to land use and zoning instead of purchasing open space?
2: Several years ago, I did a study of what all 50 states were doing to curtail sprawl. And I looked at a bunch of regions. It's an 800-page report. I'll send a signed copy to someone if they promise to read it all. But when I was done, I had a kind of, instead of eureka moment, a well-duh moment. So one thing is you have to change your land use regulations in a fundamental way. You have to have oversight. You have to have enforcement. We have actually citizen enforcement in Oregon. And you have to stick with it. So it's not just a little bit of tinkering. You have to really think about your entire landscape. In California, it actually has a huge amount of planning legislation. A lot of it's not enforced, and a lot of it is advisory. And that just doesn't work. If you mean it, you have to require it. So it's politically difficult, but I think it'll be essential both for equity and sustainability.
0: Robert, there's a couple of questions I had for you that I didn't get to ask, and I'm curious if you could get into it a little bit. So what, just in general, what roles do you think ADUs and missing middle housing play in terms of meeting a state's housing production goals? Oregon and California, I'm sure other states have goals that they're trying to meet. Can you in, give us some insight into how middle housing can help
2: well i think it could help significantly but just the adu productions we had before the pandemic i remember talking about this and whether it was regarded as a niche with our regional government and one of the planners there said we were looking at i think three or four percent of the housing production going on during that high growth period was taking the form of adus that is not a niche three or four percent right so i think We don't know what it could play. If there was a requirement that new housing that was built, something discussed in Portland and the region had to include an ADU, then we could really talk about a significant increase in production. So I think the potential, even if it's one or 2%, is significant because ADUs are unlike apartments and they're unlike single family homes. They really are in different locations, they're at different scales, they're in opportunity areas often. So I think they can play a very important role I think the trick is, can we get that to go from hundreds to thousands? And how do you do that? So the answer is yes, it can, but we'll have to see. Oh, one other thing I should add is that when, as part of the planning effort here in the region, we want to encourage growth along corridors and centers and not sprawl. We've had an explosion of mid-rise apartments along transit corridors, simply by eliminating parking requirements. It's fifteen to $40,000 per unit extra, and all of a sudden, things now work. So that has been dramatic in the last five years. I think it, there is big potential.
0: I always give a lot of credence to people who put their money where their mouth is, and by that I mean people who build an ADU for themselves, because I think there's so much to be gained in terms of understanding the market by going through the process yourself. So can you just talk a little bit about, now that you've been through the ADU development process yourself, how has that changed your understanding of the ADU market and policy interventions that are out there?
2: Well, it's sort of an emphasis on some points I made earlier. One is, there are situations like mine where the cost of the ADU can be low and the return is high. And that's a combination of the home and the site and the regulation and available capital. A lot of Americans have no savings, so this doesn't work for them, but they may have value in their property. Finding the places where there's really high return, I think I was kind of shocked at how important this has been for my financial future. Other people know that. There's nothing particularly unique about our situation. I think sharing that could make a big difference. On the other side, I looked at the possibility of building a detached unit. Talking about that with Nicholas again. And... I looked at that return. I was going to have to borrow some of the money and it wasn't great. It was pretty weak. So what that shows is you have to find the right situation, the regulations, the right setting for the remodel and so on. And then I think it is big potential, big potential.
1: There's one where I think can be adapted to any city or any municipality experiencing growth. Danny asked, I've been asked by my local real estate investor group, what types of development does Portland need most? What do you think the best answer to this
2: question is? Housing development or development generally? I would say housing. Lower cost. (laughs) And I think that is going to be a mixture of apartments. But I also think we need innovations to test markets. And the work that Cole and others did actually did that and demonstrated there was a market. That's actually a role for government is to test markets. So I think there are some things around design. So for example, can we get designs where people have a small backyard and some privacy, but it's part of a multifamily development? Is that a big market? What can we do with adaptive reuse of existing structures, both homes and not? So I would say we need more housing, more variety of housing. We don't need more trophy housing. You know, We don't need to worry about the upper end of the market, except insofar as it's using up the land and the taxpayer-required financing required for other people.
0: Thanks, Robert. I noticed how you slipped adaptive reuse. That was pretty slick. All right. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Robert. And we are going to wrap up today's show. Thanks again so much for being our guest today.
2: My pleasure. And thank you for doing this, Cole. It's very important.
1: Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the ADU Hour. New episodes will be released weekly.
0: The ADU Hour audio podcast series includes some of the interviews that were part of the live show. The unedited full-length version of all of the episodes is now available in video format for a one-time purchase price of $39 on buildinginadu.com. You can register for the ADU Hour series to gain immediate and indefinite access to all new and old shows. You can also find ADU courses for homeowners, real estate professionals, sign up for my email newsletter, which includes content and announcements, and pick up a copy of the book Back to Our Revolution while you're there. Go to buildinganadu.com to learn more.